Hi there, thanks for watching this. It's the final episode of Rich Tang's Meaning of Life about the shape of things to come. Uh, thanks for being along with the long, long ride of this series coming out. It's taken us 18 months. It cost us a bit of money and lots of time, but hopefully it's all been worth it. I think uh, it gets better as it goes along. So uh, hopefully you've stuck with it. <laughs> uh, if you've enjoyed it and would like to see more, you can buy longer versions of the shows with the full interviews and lots more stand-up uh, at gofasterstrike.com slash rhmol. It's £15 to get all six episodes, which are all 90 minutes long, it's about nine hours worth of stuff, I think that makes. Um, uh, and uh, on video and audio, £15 for video and audio, and £6 if you just want to listen to the 90 minute long versions on audio, that's £1 each. So that's hardly anything that would really help us uh, to do more stuff like this, uh, if this could basically break even, as we're, all we're aiming for. Uh, and if it does do well, we will do something else. I, I think probably no more Ramols, but maybe a vid monthly video as it occurs to me might become, hey, Optimum, I didn't say it, so don't shout that out. Um, if you just want to make a donation, go to gofasterstrike.com slash badges. You can either make a donation, get a badge in return, make a badgeless donation of your choice. You can pay a pound, you can pay more than a pound. Uh, you can pay a monthly donation, would be even better for us if you pay a pound or more a month. You get loads of extras and also that money will all go channeling into making future internet content. But just telling your friends about this show and just watching this show is amazingly helpful to us. So you do that if you want. So it's all, it's all, you like the Medici family, but you're all a micro Medici rather than, so if you all put a pound in and 25,000 people watch this, that would pay for the series. So it's that simple really. Um, and if you all gave 10 pounds, we could make 10 series. You see, that's how it works. Uh, we're doing it for the love of comedy and uh, and cock jokes. It's a Medici, you're a Medici family of cock jokes rather than beautiful works of art. Admittedly, this won't last centuries, though this intro seems to be doing. If you don't like the intro, you can always skip through it. If you don't like the opening titles, you think they're too long, skip through them. That's my advice to you. Uh, but there's an extra joke in there every week. I'm going to go. All right, hope you enjoy it. Thanks for listening and watching. Goodbye. Where did we come from? What are we? Where are we going? The answers, my friend, in the wind they are blowing. Is the mind of God even worth knowing? What's the meaning of life? That's what this show will be showing. Is life just a dream? Is anything certain? Is the world just a stage? If so, where's the curtain? Is the queen really a lizard or is David Icke bonkers? If a serial killer kills another serial killer, does it work like conkers? If God made the universe, then who created God? And just who created whoever created God? And who created whoever created whoever created God? Or does God just exist, the cocky omnipresent sod? Are we victims of fate or is there free will? Is there a bigger trial on earth than AA gear? Is the cannibalistic Eucharist the spookiest sacrament? Our babies really nothing more than sexual does a suicidal be self-indulgent with ennui? Recite a sad soliloquy. To be a bee or not to be a bee? 
From Father Christmas to say the two fairies were the brutes I'm a shush and demand some proof It's the answer 42 What's the meaning of it all? What's the meaning of asking? Don't get a logical positivist on me unless you want an ass kicking Cause I just wanna know What's the meaning of life? What's the meaning of life? It's Richard Herring's Meaning of Life. Please welcome an overambitious man discovering his limitations. It's Richard Herring! <laughs> oh, yes. £30 well spent. Very exciting. Yes, uh, welcome to the show. Uh, welcome to the final episode of Richard Herring's Meaning of Life. Or, as all the cool kids are calling it, Rahumol. <laughs> Over the last six months, we've attempted to answer all the questions that science, religion and Wikipedia have failed to answer. Like Questions like, how long was Jesus' cock? Um, <laughs> come on, this is a serious question. Don't be childish about this. It must have been a certain length. That must have been predetermined by God. I mean, he was, he was the son of God. Uh, would his dad have been tempted to give him a little bit extra? You know, chip off the old block, the king dong of the Jews? Or would the true Messiah have had a humble knob? <laughs> or maybe just a smooth, hairless groinal area like an action man would have. We don't, we don't know. There's nothing in the Bible about it. I uh, hope you've enjoyed the series so far. It's been a bold experiment uh, for us. But even if you haven't enjoyed the actual jokes or been amused by it at all, I hope you've had some fun watching my weight gradually decreasing throughout the series. So seriously, over the last six months, I have, I've shed quite a lot of weight. On show one, uh, on uh, 17th of November 2013, I weighed in around uh, 96 kilograms, which was quite bad. The buttons on this, this is my wedding suit, the button was popping off. It did, it actually came off on that day. Uh, on show two, on January the 26th, 2014, I've gone down to 92.2 kilograms. Show three, 16th of February, now 90.6 kilograms. Show four, March the 16th, my weight had plunged to 88.8 kilograms. Show five was the 13th of April. I was now a puny 87.1 kilograms. And this morning on the 18th of May 2004, I was a mere 84.6 kilograms. I've lost 11.6 kilograms, uh, which is over 25 pounds during the course of this. I don't, I, don't think, I don't think it's been actually writing and recording this show which has caused the weight loss, uh, but maybe it is. Uh, though uh, uh, the, all the money I've lost putting this together certainly has made it harder for me to buy food. So... <laughs> At the very least, I now have a very expensive flick book of my diminishing mass. Uh, aptly, this month's topic is the shape of things to come. In his seminal 1933 book, The Shape of Things to Come, H.G. Wells attempted to predict what shape things would be in the future. Uh, amazingly, he got nearly everything wrong. He predicted that computers uh, would be hexagonal. That was wrong. He said video recorders would be a dodecahedron in shape. That, he said rockets would be shaped like bums. I mean, that is... <laughs> I mean, they're rocket-shaped. That was such an easy one to do. He got that wrong. Uh, he said that the iPhone would be in the shape of Louis XVI's ball sack. It's very wrong. I mean, that was the closest. Uh, the, the only thing he got 100% right was he said Toblerones would be triangular. I mean, that is not, that is not enough. 
Does that understand why that's a seminal work? It's 2014 now, and uh, we're literally living in the future. It seems more futuristic than the year 2013 to be somehow 2014. It's embarrassing how little progress we've made towards the dystopia predicted by the films of the 70s and 80s. Where are the talking monkeys who are going to enslave us and then bury the Statue of Liberty in some sand? What's happened there? Where's the food in pill form? And more importantly, where are the pills in food form? I was really looking forward to those. Where are the sentient robots which are going to turn evil and take over the world? The closest we've got is those self-checkout machines at the supermarket, and that's... But they don't evaporate you with a laser if they find an unexpected item in the bagging area. They just... They might be playing the long game and trying to frustrate us uh, with their basic uselessness so we just all kill ourselves and they can just take over. We, we haven't even put a man on Uranus, which all my schoolmates were confidently predicting would have happened by now. <laughs> but it doesn't feel as futuristic as it should, yet 2014 it does feel like the far future. Maybe it's because we're now only one year away from the year that Marty McFly travelled to in Back to the Future 2. That's a terrifying thing. That seemed like the distant future back in the 1980s. And now it's almost upon us. And I think we should be feeling pretty embarrassed that we failed to live up to any of its prophecies. Uh, we've got six months to invent a hoverboard. Or, or we're going to start looking pretty stupid uh, to the people of the past. And we're going to have to pull our fingers out if we're going to be living in a society that no longer needs roads by this time in January. Uh, so. <laughs> the real challenge, though, I think, might be to repopularise the fax machine. Uh, you remember that the future Marty McFly has three of those in his house. I mean, that is... We're going to really have to put some work in. That's how he gets fired. Uh, as, a, as a man, I worry uh, that things might have... Uh, might, I think in the future, things might progress that, so that men become obsolete. I mean, it's already happening. We've got machines. I mean, uh, brute strength isn't required anymore in industry. Computers mean we're not even necessary as cannon fodder in wars. We're getting to a point where men aren't even necessary for reproduction. Are we approaching a future where men exist only as sperm donors, where women will keep us chained up in dungeons and milk us like aphids? <laughs> like most men. I bloody well hope so. That sounds all right. That sounds all right, isn't it? Pull your fingers out, scientists. Get working on that. You can get back to the Hadron Collider once you've got that sorted out. Get your priorities right. Oh, brave new world that has such dungeons in it. Uh, though... Though it's, uh, it's hard to predict the future, we do have some, uh, we have some pretty good ideas of what might happen in, uh, geologically and uh, astrologically and think in the future. These are a few events that we can definitely predict. In 50,000 years' time, Niagara Falls will have eroded away the remaining 32 kilometres to Lake Erie and have ceased to exist, uh, resulting in a disappointing 52,014 for postcard sales at the gift shop. Uh, <laughs> In 50 million years' time, Africa will collide with Europe, creating a mountain range comparable to the Himalayas between the two continents. Uh, Dick, I beg your pardon, Nick Griffin, uh, is trying to make that happen already a lot early. He's going to Italy, just really pushing everything, really, as hard as he can. Whilst Nigel Farage is getting UKIP supporters down to UK beaches with paddles to try and row us away from the continent. We can defeat uh, ge geology. Uh, in 800 million years' time, carbon dioxide will fall to a point where photosynthesis is no longer possible and multicellular life will die out, which is why I'm storing up all my CO2 in plastic bags. So uh, I'll be ready. When 800 million years' time comes, whoosh, I'll be safe. I'll be saved in there with a couple of plants. Uh, and 3.3 uh, billion years from now, there's a 1% chance that Mercury will collide with Venus, sending the inner solar system into chaos and having serious repercussions for everyone's horoscope that day. Uh, so... <laughs> 
My main fear for the future is that animals will rise up uh, and enslave us, uh, and really they should, because mankind, uh, if, they, if they don't destroy mankind, mankind is going to destroy them pretty quickly. They should gang together in a massive animal army and come for us, is what I think. But which animal will it be that does take over in the future? Pierre Boulet, in his misjudged race relations satire, Planet of the Apes, uh, predicted monkeys, a bit, a bit offensive, would... Uh, would overthrow mankind, uh, but we've got our eye on them. I don't think we're ready for them. As soon as we see a talking one, we'll take them all down. So that's, that's distracting us. I think, it'll be, I think the attack will come from other quarters. The other day, I thought uh, it had started. I came down to my kitchen uh, to find that maybe 20 or 30 ants were scurrying around on the tops in the kitchen and in my, in my, around my sink. Uh, the planet of the ants revolution, it seemed had begun. It was like a biblical plague, I have to say. I mean, it might not be impressive as some of the plagues that God did back in the day with all the locusts and stuff, but the thing is, I haven't done anything that bad. You know, I've just questioned God's existence and speculated on his son's penis size. It's not there. It has to be a sliding scale. 30 ants is equivalent to... In, to my crime, that is the plague. Uh, they'd gotten through a hole in the windowsill, so I thwarted their attempted takeover of the planet with some matchsticks, which I just stuck in the hole. And then I watched the stupid, clueless ants get all confused because they, they were upset. They couldn't work out how to get, come in through the hole again. The idiot ants, I'm much better than them. I then further proved my superiority by squashing some of the ants with my finger. Uh, that would teach them for coming into my house and eating my crumbs. Yeah, all right, I probably wasn't going to eat those crumbs, but that's not the point. Technically, they belong to me, they're mine, they have to leave them alone. The thing that had probably attracted the ants in was a takeaway I'd left out overnight. Uh, so I got the cartons, I threw them away in the bins outside uh, with the ants that were still on them, nobly allowing those ants that were still on those boxes to live. Uh, albeit in a new environment several ant miles away from where they had previously been. But the remaining ants weren't so lucky. I brushed them into the sink and turned on the taps, washing maybe 11 ants to an horrific death. Uh, I laughed as they died and flew down the, the whirlpool of the plug hole. Those ants had dared to disrespect me, my house and my crumbs and I wasn't going to stand for it. And I stopped them taking over the world as well, if you think about that. So that, I'd done a noble thing. I'm sensing from the reaction here in the, in the room that quite a, few, quite a lot of you feel uh, that the death penalty was too much in this. You're thinking a custodial sentence would have been more appropriate because the ants were just following their instincts after all. But I haven't got time to gather up a load of ants, build an ant prison. For them. Imagine how tightly I would have to be so ants couldn't get out of it. Then stand guard for 24 hours a day over those ants to, to, to teach them a lesson. And would they learn the lesson? I don't think they would either. I think they would come out and do exactly the same thing again. I don't think prison would... If, the, if this least this way, the deaths of a few of the ants will probably serve as a warning to the ants that I allowed to live and they might go about mending their ways and stop being so naughty and taking over the world. I don't, I don't think they'll try and rebel against their human masters now. Would that death sentence hanging over them, or it could make them more determined. Uh, I remember that as a kid, I used to go into my dad's greenhouse, lay out some newspaper, waiting for ants to get on it, and when there were enough ants aboard, I would set that on fire and then laugh as the ants, as they kind of burnt and fizzled up. These were ants that hadn't got above themselves by thinking they could come and live indoors, by the way. These were ants who'd done nothing wrong and who were living in the ground where they belonged. I, I didn't have the moral and ethical compass then that I have now. 
I felt guilty for the needless murders of those ants. Any ant that survived that burning would probably have gone on to become the ant Osama bin Laden, de declaring war against all humanity. Maybe it was that ant that encouraged all the other ants to start coming into humans' homes and eating their leftover takeaways. And all I've done is to kill the ants or lock them away in my Guantanamo dustbin. My Guantanamo bus dustbin, maybe. Uh, but... Uh, and exacerbated the problem. By, by trying to stem the problem, I might actually have created the scenario from which the planet of the ants will develop. That is the terrible thing. You never know. That's the problem with the future. It's quite a confused analogy there. I don't know what I'm really saying about <laughs> either the penal system, terrorists, or ants. I don't know. It's, it gets confusing once you start trying to do... Uh, as Pierre Boulet found out, it gets confusing if you start trying to use animals. <laughs> the other thing I was, um, I was worried about was when I was a kid at school, in biology lessons, I behaved very badly in biology lessons. We had a lovely teacher, but she, was, she, was, uh, she couldn't control the class very well, and we sort of took the piss. We were the clever kids as well at the front of the class, and we were the jokers, so we learnt everything and fucked up for everyone else. Uh, I'll give you an example. Uh, whenever Miss Button, she was called, whenever she said mitosis, which she had to say quite a lot because she was a biology teacher, we would say, you're what? <laughs> Every single time she said that. <laughs> whenever she said meiosis, we'd say, you're what? It's the same joke, but it was, it was good. Uh, whenever she said hormone, we would say, don't pay her. Which is, you have to think a little bit about that one. And uh, so we made her life hell. But there was one day in uh, biology where, I don't think they do this anymore, but we had to dissect a rat. Uh, I don't know if any of you did this. And the rats came on a board, kind of pinned up on, on the board with their kind of, I'm not going to say their arms, but their, their rat arms up and their... But it looked like they were being crucified, right? They really genuinely did. And I, I was worried, what if the rat I was dissecting turned out to be the rat Jesus? Um, which, you know, I'm presuming Jesus comes back to every different kind of species. He wouldn't just come to humans. He comes and trying to instill a good moral code into every different kind. I mean, I don't know what moral code rats would have. I mean, he'd go stop spreading plague and stuff and eating people's food and be good rats. Or would he say, carry on doing that? That is what rats are meant to do. Congratulations. I don't know. It's hard, it's hard when you get into the morality uh, of animals. But then I would become the rat Pontius Pilate, wouldn't I? That, I'd go down in history, in the rat history, as this guy who killed their beloved saviour. And, and the problem with the, the rat generations are much shorter than human generations. With Pontius Pilate, he was dead long before anyone knew who he was. But with me, like there's been about, probably about 10,000 generations of rats since that day. There are rats now who are running around Christian rats <laughs> who will find out that I'm Pontius Pilate. They can come and get me, can't they? be like extremist Christian Rats, so that's, I'm worried about the planet of the rats as well. That's my other. That's my other. <laughs> Will technological advances be our undoing? Uh, science is treated with suspicion. Uh, even though its successes have transformed our lives, it's kind of weird. We wouldn't have any of the medical uh, or, or, or technical, uh, technological advances we have without science, which have improved our lives, and yet still we see science... We view it with suspicion, and all films are about science going wrong. Uh, people are worried about genetic engineering and cloning. It seems to terrify people uh, without them realising that man has been genetically engineering the world for millennia. Every dog on this planet is related to the same pack of wolves from about 10 to 15,000 years ago. Every dog, you see, we've created all the species, all the, all, the select, all the different kinds of dogs through selective breeding. Every dog, you will see, is that closely related. Every dog is related to that pack of wolves, I think, from around Siberia about 15,000 years ago. This dog, that dog is related to a pack of wolves just 15,000 years ago. And so is this dog. That, that, is, how, that, is, 
they're from the same pack of wolves. It really freaks me out every time I see any dogs. But cloning's an odd one, I think. Before the 5th of July 1996, uh, it would have been hard to contemplate any situation in which an animal as docile and unthreatening as a sheep could cause moral terror and panic. Uh, but then the clone Dolly the sheep uh, came along. Uh, Dolly the sheep, of course, was different uh, from all the other sheep because she was exactly the same as another sheep. Uh, imagine a world where all sheep are exactly the same and there's... You can't tell any of them apart. I mean, that is a terrifying dystopia. That kind of thing would give you sleepless nights, wouldn't it? And until, you know, you attempted to count how many sheep there were. And then... But Dolly represents much more uh, about our concerns about our own individuality, uh, the battle between rationalism and religion, and the general distrust of scientific progress. When the news broke, uh, the press report seemed a little bit unbalanced, both in terms of impartiality and mentally. Uh, the, uh, the New York Times headline was, uh, Fiction becomes true, dreaded possibilities are raised. <laughs> dreaded possibilities. Well, I mean, what were these dreaded... Perhaps someone might make a cardigan from Dolly's wool? A cardigan of pure evil. Uh, another headline read, uh, Cloning discovery has unleashed a wolf in sheep's clothing. No, it hasn't. It is, it's unleashed a sheep in sheep's clothing. Do you, do you not even understand what cloning... It doesn't change animals into different animals. That's the whole point. It's the same animal. And even Dr Lee Silver, a biologist at Princeton, stated uh, what it means is that all science fiction is true. <laughs> That's logical, isn't it? That's a logical conclusion. Because they cloned a sheep, all science fiction is true. So 50-foot Thai women are going to start attacking our cities. The Clangers live on a moon with, full of soup. And Jar Jar Binks is real, though presumably he's been kicked to death pretty quickly. <laughs> even, even Reuters said, British sheep clone raises the spectre of Frankenstein. Really, Reuters? Is this objective journalism? Is Dolly the sheep similar to Frankenstein in any way? This is it, Igor, this is it. Just a flick of this switch. Are you sure, master? It is a blasphemy unto the Lord. Silence, Igor. I shall not be stopped. It lives! It lives! A sheep. You've made a sheep. No, Igor, not just a sheep. A sheep that is an exact copy of another sheep. <laughs> right, and that's frightening why? I have created a sheep. I am the modern Prometheus. You're the modern little Bo Peepius. People have been waiting for years to see what you, Dr. Frankenstein, would do next after making the terrifying monster with the bolt through its neck. And this is all you've come up with, a sheep? Don't you see the implications, Igor? I have made a sheep from another sheep. Stop the thunder and lightning. Stop, no, that is not worth thunder and lightning. All, all sheep are made from other sheep. That, this is just a sheep. It's a little bit frightening. No, it isn't. No, it isn't. Unless the sheep have any special powers. Uh, can it leap at you and bite out your throat with its monstrous adamantine teeth? No, it just eats grass and stands around looking at stuff, which can be sometimes slightly unnerving. It's rubbish. You shut up. 
This is what people will remember me for. They won't. I wouldn't be surprised if that sheep becomes incorrectly known as a Frankenstein, much to the annoyance of pedants who'll point out that is the name of the creator, not the sheep. Look, it must be hard for you, Master, trying to come up with a follow-up after your first experiment was such a success. But this just doesn't have the impact. Couldn't you at least make a sheep made up of the bodies of several different dead sheep, maybe with a bolt through its neck? That wouldn't be anywhere near as scary as this. Or maybe a sheep that has the head of a lion and the body of a dragon. That would be scary. That wouldn't be a sheep, though. There's, there's no sheep in your sheep at all. The sheep is much more subtle than the big blundering monsters you've come up with. Honestly, it's really going to get to people. You'll see. No one is going to fear a sheep. <laughs> Shut up! I'm going to bed, Igor. You stay here and guard the sheep from angry villagers brandishing flaming torches. No one is going to care about the sheep. Bloody sheep. I'll be laughed out of the crippled henchman union when they hear about this. <laughs> Stupid bloody sheep, stop looking at me. Stop, stop looking at me. You're really freaking me out. Let me out of here, let me out. No! <laughs> it's clear we're scared that if science creates a human being, if they clone a human being, they'd have crossed a sacred line, destroying something holy and meddling in something beautiful and mystical, which rather ignores the prosaic and disgusting and somewhat scattergun way most of us end up existing. Uh, you'd think if God thought so highly of the process, he would have made it harder for drunk idiots to reproduce. Might be putting some kind of lock on people's genitals or a kind of combination code on their like, fingerprint thing, like on, your, on the new iPhones. Or made the process by which a, a new life is created mystical and beautiful and involved less of this. That was my sex face. So, um... <laughs> yeah, didn't need to tell you. So, uh, but, though, to be honest, I've always been behind, haven't I? So that's probably the first time you've seen it. So... People worry we might be able to... The, same, the main fear about cloning, it seems to me, is that people are worried we might clone Hitler so we can start off from where he left off, but... Even if anyone did clone Hitler, the clone of Hitler wouldn't be Hitler. Like, the circumstances of history and Hitler's experience is what created Hitler. The clone would have a different life. He wouldn't become the same as Hitler at all. It would be, he wouldn't have been born at the same time, so it wouldn't... Let, just to be sure, we could fix it so the Hitler clone got into the Vienna School of Art, and so there would be none of the problems. And, you know, even if they did manage to clone an evil Hitler with Hitler's personality, I think we'd be quite wary of him this time. I'm not... <laughs> I'm not sure he'd do as well this time round. I think people might spot it. Uh, another possible evil use of cloning might be for me to sneak into the dressing room of the actress who plays Amy Pond in Doctor Who, uh, nick some of the hairs from her hairbrush and then clone two or three copies of her, keep them chained up in my basement and use them as my Amy Pond lesbian sex slaves. Uh, but the problem with that, it's a, ni it's a nice idea in theory, but of course... You know, a cloning is not a photocopy. That's not how it works. If you're going to make a 3D photocopy of someone, a clone, you have to, you just clone a baby. It would take a long time and a lot of effort to carry out my dastardly plan. I would have to raise the three Amy Ponds from mewling, puking babies right through teenage tantrums where I told them to keep their music down. And they said, shut up, you're not our real dad. And I go, no, but I stole the hair from the real Amy Pond's hairbrush and I paid for the expensive cloning process, so technically you're mine. We never 
asked to be clone sharp. Uh, after 20 years of putting up with this, the massive expense of feeding and schooling them, I'd be 70 years old and just be desperate to have all those Amy Ponds out from under my feet so I could enjoy my life in peace again. There are easy ways of being evil than uh, cloning people, is, my, is perhaps my point. <laughs> So to talk to us about uh, the future, we have the host of The Digital Human, and she is also a doctor of social psychology. Will you please welcome Alex Krutowski? <laughs> Thank you very much. Thanks for coming out. Please sit down, pull up a microphone. Thank you for coming. What is the doctor of social psychology? What well, does that mean? It, well, basically, it's a psychologist, yeah. right? So somebody who looks at people's brains, or at least looks at their behaviours, um, and decides why they are, why they're influenced by things is other people. In short, it's basically it gives me license to watch people at dinner parties. Okay. That's pretty much all it does, <laughs> which is fine because I quite like doing that anyway. So. I like doing that as well. I'm going to call myself a social yeah, psychologist as well. Uh, and. Uh, you're going to tell us about the future. How do you know what's going to be in the future, first of all? I've been there, I've seen it. <laughs> um, well, basically, because we are in the future right now. Well... Yeah, no... Now we are. Uh, right now, now and ready. Now. Now. Yeah. I, um, it was actually kind of cool. I went to Tokyo a few years ago, and, and what really freaked me out is everybody was saying to me, it's going to completely blow your mind. It's, you know, it's like nothing you've ever experienced before. The culture shock is going to be out of this world. And I remember walking through Tokyo and sort of looking down streets and realizing that most of the popular culture that I'd immersed myself in for the last however many years, I guess it was 20 years, 30 years at that point, was based in Japan, whether it was people like William Gibson, authors like William Gibson, or anime, or computer games, or whatever. So as I was walking through Tokyo, I was able to kind of point down a street and say, oh, look, that's the future over there. And, oh, no, 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 that, that, that's the future over there. So I have actually been... You have been to I have been to the future. Japan. Yeah, that's pretty much. <laughs> you know those, the sushi belts? That's the future. That is, that is pretty good. The first one of those I saw blew me away. I didn't even know what sushi was. <laughs> That alone that it could did travel. You, did you try and get, get on? This? It was amazing. It was on a train the first time I saw it as well. That was, it was on a little train going around. That's even more future than yeah, I've been in. It was in Melbourne. They didn't have it in the UK then, in, uh, 10 years ago. <laughs> uh, so what do you think is going to happen in the future? Do you think that the film Terminator could ever happen in real life? Well, as a social psychologist, <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah? Oh, yeah. Well, I'm, I'm kind of of the dystopian fantasy. Oh, yeah. I've, yeah, I've always been a bit of a fan of dystopias, whether it's Brave New World uh, or um, even someone is more contemporary like Margaret Atwood, Oryx and Crake. I love, yeah, I love Margaret. Yeah, so that kind of stuff I've always really sort of enjoyed watching people imagine the destruction of society. And so that just kind of fits into the yeah. canon, basically. But it's interesting. I mean, I think that, that, that the point I made in one of the sketches is that science and technology has really helped improve our lives immeasurably and yet all fiction about science, nearly all of it, is about destroying the world or making things bad and how nature is best. Yeah, well, most fiction, you know, especially science fiction or technology fiction, you look back at the 60s and it's all very set. It's all social, social commentary. It's like Jonathan Swift doing, you know, doing all of his work back when he was doing it. And you see the, the, the stuff like the Andromeda strain in the 60s and you see more contemporary um, science fiction 
it's basically predicting the future as it's all going to go to hell in a handbasket, um, which is kind of fun because that allows us to say, hold on a second, we don't need it to be that way. But on the other hand, we also have things like Star Trek, which have predicted the future by creating magical things yeah. uh, that, that geeks have said, okay, fine, I'm going to make it my life's goal to make that. And that's why we have teleporters now. <laughs> <laughs> Good. Still working on it, but, you know. but that is—it has made probably mo the mobile phones that do that. Yeah, that's only because of Star Trek. Oh my God! The first <laughs> time I had one of those, I was like, it was absolutely brilliant. But now, of course, we've got these things, which are—I mean, these. This is the future. This yeah. is more the future than anything that I've ever seen. I just got this is a, a new phone that was brought back to me from the U.S. Thank you very much, Ben, because I—I I was sick and tired of hitting my other one and saying. God damn it, why don't you work? My expectations of the future had moved on. But this thing is just absolutely unbelievable. This is the more intelligence than, than many of the people that I know, um, which is a little bit unfortunate. But, you know, if you, if you count Google as your friend, then, yeah, yeah absolutely. It's just it's out of this world. So yeah. although those flip-top things were cool, it was just a gimmick. That <laughs> is the future. Well, it is when you think, you know, even if you could go back 15 years and give some... give me 15 years ago one of those I'd be I'd, my mind would be blown I'd probably you probably would die of shock <laughs> it's like you know it's like when you imagine a medieval if you went back to medieval times and gave someone anything from the future it would be incredible. but if you could only back 15 years and give me one of those I go ah can't believe it well you uh, probably wouldn't and that's the amazing thing about about these touchscreen devices in particular that was the first time I opened up um, a touchscreen smartphone. I knew that that was it. Like that was literally it because there were no instructions. Now most of the most of the new technology that we've had, you know, sort of looking towards the future, has always come with completely illegible instructions for how to use it, and often in five different languages with at least one page missing. This completely eradicated that. You opened up the box, and all it said was, touch me. And it was, it was so you know, welcoming and inviting, and you just had to do it. And suddenly you realized you'd, you'd cross the Rubicon. You were there, man, and you, had, you, know, you were suddenly in this whole new world of interfaces. And that was, so you probably would have been perfectly fine. Mm. Probably would have been, per I can't really, your brain dribbling out of your ear like in Barton Fink. <laughs> Probably wouldn't have happened because of the iPhone. Maybe some of the other things that are Amazing. out there right now. But um, and I was just backstage. You know, I was doing some research that I should have done like two weeks ago that I did during the interval. Thankfully, uh, I was thankfully reading. You briefed me on this. <laughs> I, I just want to say that. I was reading about an article in the Guardian about uh, the guy who um, uh, came up with the Gaia theory, the Gaia theory about of the Earth. But he also thinks that human beings are going to kind of. The, and robots are going to become sort of one, or in, in the future, humanity will be... Robotics will be part of the human beings. I, don't, I mean, I presume not biologically. I presume we'd always have to add it on. It's not like... A, well, you know, when, when things evolved, it was like things did kind of evolve together, didn't they? Sometimes two creatures kind of became one creature, but I don't think, like, our iPhone, a baby's going to be born with an iPhone... In its hand, with a, exactly with, <laughs> with a nine jack months practice. Right here. <laughs> yeah. like, oh, but uh, but you know yeah. the actual technology is going to connect with humanity in that way. Do you think is that something that's likely to happen? We're going to become semi-robot. Well, there's a lot of there are many different theories on this, and the most popular one, um, at least in the creator's own mind, uh, Ray Kurzweil. He's sort of he's a, a philosopher and thinker about the future. I have to put on like a big American accent to say that <laughs> you know I'm a philosopher and thinker of the future. I suppose it's more a Carl Sagan voice. Anyway, moving on. Uh, Ray Kurzweil, 
currently at Google, and he's he's devised or is sort of promoting this theory called um, called oh good lord help me. Thank you, the singularity. <laughs> I'm going at synchronicity. No, it's not secret. serendipity. No, it's not serendipity. Thank you, the singularity. And the singularity is this idea that our intelligence and robots' intelligence are going to sort of achieve parity at some point. And then, of course, we're going to have the Terminator, ro uh, Terminator moment in mm -hmm. which Skynet becomes sentient and, and then, you know, like the ants, <laughs> yeah. they become our rulers. And by the way, I do just want to point out that I've been having an ant invasion as well. There you so go, see? Synchronicity there. Um, anyway, um, so there's you know there's there's that theory that's out there that people have been playing with for a little while, and then you know we've we've got this this Gaia theory about how it's all just part of the universe, and we're all going to converge and merge into technologies, and artificial intelligences are going to support and help, and then eventually move beyond us. And I don't know if you saw the uh, the film Her. Did you see Her? No. It was a really actually a lovely film set in the very near future about an operating system that develops a sort of sentience, that, mm -hmm. that develops a, an intelligence beyond its original owner. It was, a, I thought it was quite a thoughtful, thought-provoking film as well. Another thing that we were talking about backstage is that, is that you know, some people think that riding a bicycle means that you're a cyborg. It's, some, it's, it's anything that a technology does to enhance your sort of physical person, whether it's robotic, as we would imagine it now, you know, the sort of the, the I'm doing the robot dance from the 80s here, just to point that out. I never thought I would do that on a stage. Dancer, I am not. <laughs> um, but, you know, robots or robot dogs or robot cars or whatever it is, those things may not converge into our brains at any point in yeah. the near future, but certainly the way that we use technologies, whether it's a pen or an iPhone or whatever it is, we are all cyborgs, man, unless you completely reject them. I'm definitely, a, I've got contact lenses in, I've got fillings, I've had braces, you know, I, I a have... A filling doesn't make you a robot. I am... You have no. I can hear. I've got the old. I've got the old style. You know, so it's it's actually pick an antenna. Radios. I can pick up different signals from around. Um, but yeah. So, but these. It's it's a way, I suppose, of of people kind of trying to come to terms with either utopian or dystopian, of the way that we are integrating these scientific advances, these technological advances into our worlds. And a bicycle, absolutely, at one point, it was a phenomenal device that people were like, what is this thing? It shouldn't actually work. It's changing our society. Whoa, was the kind of general <laughs> opinion about them. And so people who were writing them were, yeah, they were... They were cyborgs. Not penny farthing stuff. A very, count. very good friend of mine <laughs> who lives in London um, is one of the world penny farthing champions. Um, <laughs> so I'm sure Kat Young-Nickel would have something to say about that. Nice. And if people happen to be in London sort of around the first couple of weeks of June, um, in the centre of London is the Smithfield Meat Market. And every year there's this bike race or a series of bike events called the Nocturne. And every year, Cat competes in the Penny Farthing Championship that goes around Smithfield. Yeah. So if you want a bit of the future past, past future, then go there. If you want to be a world champion or something, just choose something that no one else does. You have no, I you have no idea. Seriously, she's champion in, in, uh, in Tasmania, but she's yeah. not champion in, uh, in England. No. Anyway, that's a whole different story. But yeah, it's <laughs> bloody, it's phenomenal. Because there's another bloke in England. <laughs> with a penny farthing, and he can sit on it without falling off. So he's 
He's the world champion in England. They're not easy to ride, I'll tell you that. Oh, my goodness gracious. Well, look, this has been really, uh, really fantastic. Thank you very much for coming here. Will you please give it a big round of applause to Alex Grodowski? Thank you. The future is coming. Are we heading for a wonderful future, paradise, a brave new world? Or is it going to be an ecological disaster or an apocalypse? Uh, or will technology free us uh, from our chains? Even if there is a God, then he or she no longer seems interested in intervening in our lives. We can't sit back and assume that our problems will be solved by God. We're in charge here. We needed religion, I think, to get the human race this far, I think without religion, we would never, with the unity that provides, we'd have never got here. But we have to accept now that in the future, it's us flying this plane, no one else. We've got to solve all of our problems, whichever way we're going to do it. Hopefully, science can do it. We're the ones at the controls of the plane, at least. The plane might veer off out of our control, fly off into outer space and the unknowable future. But we have to grasp the metal and, and make our own futures. It is as unyet, unwritten. And I did promise that this series would give you. Uh, the meaning of life uh, as well. And uh, here it is. Be glad you tuned in for the last six months. There is no meaning of life. That is, uh, <laughs> life and the universe itself are just completely random, impossible events. There are no definitive answers. There's no moral code. There's no right or wrong. Again, we have to make our own meaning to this life. And that is the meaning of life, whatever you want it to be. We have to, we have, to have as much fun as you can, I would say, given the parameters of life and the disgusting stuff about it. Try and spread as much happiness as you can to other people. Try not to be a selfish prick all of the time. Kind of balance, balance your self-interest with the interests of the world. It'll work out better for you. Try to leave this place slightly better than it was when you arrived. And clean up your wee when you sprinkle a toilet seat. That, that's pretty much... That's pretty much it. Thank you very much for watching. Goodbye. Cheers. Hope you enjoyed Richard Haynes' Meaning of Life. That's the end of the series. We had a real good time putting it all together, so I hope you enjoyed watching it. Uh, you can see longer versions of these shows. Go to gofasterstripe.com slash rhmol, and you can pay £15 for the full series, or £6 just for the audio of the full series, uh, or just make a donation at gofasterstripe.com slash badges, or come and see me on tour. Go to richardherring.com slash lotds slash tour, or if it's sometime in the future, Go to richardherring.com slash gigs and you can see if I'm coming to a place near you and you can see me live doing stuff that I've had a bit more time to rehearse than uh, Meaning of Life, hopefully. Um, we'll hopefully be back with something else exciting. There's more Leicester Square Theatre podcasts coming up in June and July. Uh, we're hopefully going to record those on video, but we might not be able to afford to. Um, so they'll be free on audio, though, for sure. Uh, Thank you. I do have not have I do not have any jokes. Uh, um, what do you, uh, what's brown and taps at your window? It is a poo on stilts, of course. That is my joke. I hope you enjoyed it. Goodbye. <laughs>
How do you like them sky potatoes? 